We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17 this morning. And it's been two weeks, two Sundays, since we've been in Hebrews, so I thought I should do just a quick bit of review in the time that we have so that we understand what's going on, because the context, as always, plays such an important part in what we're looking at this morning. Hebrews is about Jesus being greater than anything else that we hope or trust in for salvation. And this is not just an educational experience. This is not just learning the facts about Jesus Christ. The goal is to have an unwavering hope in the incomparable Savior. To be so convinced in our lives, in our heart, our soul, and our minds of who Jesus Christ is, that that truth infiltrates everything that we do, the way that we think, the way that we speak, the way we do church, the way we interact with our community. And ultimately, especially in the context of Hebrews, that we can keep going, persevere in our faith. Jesus is shown to be greater than and actually the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament systems and images, whether it be the law, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, he fulfills them. They all point to him. And in the book of Hebrews, the church, Christians like you and I, are shown to be on this journey, just like in the Exodus. They were saved when God brought them out of Egypt. They were looking forward to a promised land, and along the way, they had to keep on trusting, keep on walking with God, literally for them, walking with God as he led them on to the promised land. And, like us today, they struggled along the way. And the church that the author here is writing to was struggling as well. We're told in Hebrews 10.32 that they had endured. It said, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. And so they are applauded. You went through tough times and you kept on going. But we also know that right now, whatever their situation is, they're in danger. They're in danger of getting lazy. They're in danger of letting go of their faith. They're in danger of lack of faithfulness. Hebrews 5, 11-14 tells us they've stopped maturing in their faith. They should be moving on to solid food, but they're still infants, still just babies in their faith, and they still need the basics of milk rather than going on to deeper things in Christ Jesus. There are many warning passages in Hebrews. A warning to keep going. And the alternative to keeping going is held up as a warning. Don't go there. Look at how awful this is. Why would you want that? Keep on trusting and following God. The author has given them many examples of this kind of enduring faith in chapter 11. We looked at those imperfect people, but people even in their imperfection who trusted God. And more than anything, their lives point to God's faithfulness. So the author says, look at what God did with them, so keep on going. And then the beginning of chapter 12 says, because of their testimony, run the race that is marked out for you. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. But how? How is this group of Christians who have a history of endurance, but right now are struggling, How are they supposed to move from being babies and infants in their faith to people that run with endurance? Well, they need 
discipline. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Loving discipline. Those two words often are not considered together. And I doubt for many of us we would think of those two words together. Loving discipline. Someone who disciplines us, especially as we get older, we feel it as oppression. Who do you think you are to tell me who I am or who I should be and what I should do? We, we complain sometimes when we get together. Man, do you know what my boss did? You know what my, my coworker did? Do you know what my, my parents, and they're giving me grief for this? We don't like anything that challenges who we are and what we want to do. We don't want to hear it. But today we're going to look at this in two ways, because I have a double meaning in this title here. One is that discipline, God's discipline, is loving. He gives us loving discipline, and we as Christians are to love His discipline. Now, I think that's where we really struggle. I think in our minds we can accept, okay, God loves us, He does what He does because He loves us, but do we love Him, and because of that, love what he does even in his discipline. I think part of the problem is we have an incomplete view of discipline. We think of discipline as something that happens when we do something wrong. You break a rule, you cross a boundary, you don't measure up, and so somebody says, you are under discipline. You are going to be punished or disciplined. These bad things are going to happen to you until you shape up because you are not good enough. You get disciplined. Your freedom is restricted. Your activities are restricted. Now, this is part of, I don't want to say that's contrary to biblical discipline, but it's certainly not a big enough picture of it. There's something in the Bible, when we come to discipline, it's pointing to something that needs to be learned something that needs to be grown into, something about us that needs to be changed. It's more about learning and training. Areas of education, different subjects, used to be called in schools areas of discipline. You had the discipline of science, the discipline of math, the discipline of grammar. These were considered disciplines. They were something that through practice and instruction and repetition, the child or the adult could learn and grow into. It was a discipline. Athletics are a great example of this. The discipline of learning a new skill, of repeating that skill, that activity, that action over and over and over and over again. And those who don't participate in that sport, can never understand why would you do that over and over again? Why does the golfer go and do his swing over and over again, especially when they don't get any better? But why? Why do they just keep doing it? Because the idea is by repeating the right action, hopefully, over and over again, your body will be trained, your mind will be trained. We are trying to teach, instruct, learn, and grow, train our bodies to keep going. And in Hebrews 12, 3 through 17, we'll see that God desires this kind of discipline, training, developing, growing, and yes, even going through difficulties for our benefit. Discipline's not easy. It's not something I think most of us would cry out for, oh Lord, bring discipline into my life, because I just love it that much. But can we? in the midst of those struggles, say, God, I want to learn what you're teaching me. 
And so we have to look at the fact that discipline is a struggle. Let's start with verses 3 through 4. Let me read them for us. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I just want to stop there because it really puts a context on this struggle of discipline. And first we're told to consider Jesus. Now this is for many reasons throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is held up as someone we should look to and consider because he is our Savior. And that's true. We need to accept that Jesus is our Savior. But Jesus is also our example. Look at how he endured. Look at what he went through and how he endured faithfully and obeyed faithfully even through the worst of situations. This follows the command of verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus. And so what happens when you look to Jesus and you fix your eyes on him? This is what you see. You see someone who was faithful, even in the most most difficult of struggles. Now, it is sin that makes discipline a struggle. It says, Jesus endured opposition from sinners. He was right. They were wrong. There's no question about that in history. If you understand even a teeny tiny little bit that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the perfect Savior, if we just have an inkling of what that is, when you look at the situations Jesus went through, we have to understand he was always right and all the people causing all the grief for him were always wrong. Now, I would say that's one of the most difficult situations to be in, to know you're right and to know that everybody else is wrong. Hopefully, you don't live in that situation all the time because we're wrong when we see ourselves that way. Jesus was right. And yet, he endured opposition from sinners. Now, we struggle because we live in a world that is damaged by sin. Disease happens. Death happens. This world is infected by sin. It does not work the way it's supposed to work. And that makes everything difficult. The sin of others makes the right way difficult, unpopular. People don't support you all the time when you're trying to follow Jesus. In fact, they might mock you or turn against you or judge you. And then, of course, there's our own sin. Our own sin means that even our own desires struggle against us, and we have to struggle against our sinful ways of thinking and feeling and acting. So there is a constant struggle. And in this struggle... We can, as the end of verse 3 says, grow weary and lose heart. This is a powerful image here. Grow weary means working so hard, exerting yourself so much that you fall in exhaustion and can't go on. I almost wonder here if there's an inkling in the author's mind back to Genesis chapter 3. When Adam has fallen in sin and God is pronouncing judgment on him and he says, your work will be a toil, a labor, it will be wearisome, it will be difficult. And the author says, we in this sin-filled world, as sin-filled people, as we live, we grow weary. And then he says we can lose heart. This is more of an emotional weariness. It's a complete loss of courage, a giving up. Giving up to the point of being so overwhelmed that you faint. You can't go on. We take these together. It's like a picture of a runner. 
has run the race hard, has worked really, really hard, has been disciplined, has gone fast, maybe even sees the finish line in the distance, and yet the muscles won't keep moving. The mind can't keep compelling the body forward. The will to finish the race is gone. And the runner collapses and can't finish. Some of you today might be weary. Life is wearying. It wears us down. The remedy, according to just this one verse here, is to consider Jesus. Look to him. Look to him in his endurance. Look to him in how he lived. Look to him in the gospel of the good news that he gives us of salvation through himself. Now, verse 4, he says, Keep going because in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, again, Jesus is held up as the example. He endured even when his very life was on the line even when his physical comfort was on the line, even when all of his uh, reputation was on the line, he kept going. And the author's saying to the Hebrew Christians, look, I just want to encourage you, it could be a whole lot worse. He endured that. Now let's look at what you're going through. Because I think there's a subtle jab here. He's saying you guys are struggling and you're not even going through that. That's not what you're facing right now. Their problem was not that their lives were in danger right now. They're struggling with lesser things. They're struggling with laziness. They're struggling with allowing subtle sins to come into their lives and into their Christian community, and they're not doing anything about it. One commentator said this, Although outsiders have threatened the community, the greatest danger is their tendency toward lethargy and the neglect of their faith. Sometimes we grow weary because there are external things going on in our lives. Sometimes we grow weary because we've allowed internal things to crop up and undermine our faith and erode the foundation that's there. The picture that's been going around in the news of a home in Florida swallowed by a sinkhole. That's exactly what a sinkhole is. Something under the surface that is going on maybe for years and years and years that isn't seen. And it just washes away the ground a little bit by little bit by little bit. And then the house crumbles. Now we may wonder why we have to go through difficulty at all. If God is so good, if Jesus is so great as Hebrews has presented him to be, and he loves us so much and he has saved us, why do we have to go through bad things? Why does life have to be so difficult? And that's where the passage goes now. What is the purpose in God's discipline? Let's look at verses 5 through 13. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as the father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. 
How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. God has a goal for us. He looks at you and he loves you so much. And he says, I have a purpose for you. But that purpose requires discipline. We would love to just skip from the moment of accepting Jesus Christ to the moment of heaven. But we live, as the Old Testament Israelites did, we live in the in-between. We're walking in the desert to the promised land. We have the promises. We have the salvation. We, unlike they, we have the great Savior of Jesus Christ. But we're struggling along the way. But here's our struggle, I think, in discipline. How can someone else know what's best for us? And this is where a lot of people come to faith. They come to look at God. They come to look at the gospel. And they stumble because they say, how can anybody else know what's best for me? How can anybody else tell me who I should be? Who possibly has the right to change me but me? Now let's put this in perspective. When we were young, children, we think we know everything. We think, I want to play in the street. What's the big deal? I'm going to go play in the street. And somebody has to come along and say, no, don't play in the street. You're going to get hit by a car. And of course, the young four or five-year-old says, oh, thank you, blessed mother and blessed father, for showing me the error of my ways. No, they say, no, I'll play in the street if I want to. They have to be disciplined. They have to be taught. Now, I think that's pretty obvious. I mean, if you could go back to your childhood or, or teenage self, are there things right now you can think back to who you were, what you did, how you responded to, to things, that if you could go back and you had to live with you, things that you would want to say, hey, let's change this. Let's, let's grow in this area. Let me point out a few things. Because you know who you were, and you can probably see some of the errors. Fair enough? Now that makes sense. Problem is, we grow up. We grow up and we still think that we are the only ones who know what is right for us. So now we're in the position of the older person. We're in the position of the adult. We're not the kid anymore, so nobody else has the right to tell us what to do. So let's think out. Can you, right now, Point out in your life everything that in 50 years time, 40 years time, 20 years time, you're going to look back and know that you should have changed. Can you do that? I can't. And I'm guessing you can't either. Now, there's probably some things that we can look at and go, I probably shouldn't do that. I know I shouldn't do that. But how many things do we, with good intentions, we think we're doing the right thing, but time goes on and we say, man, that was off. But in the moment right now, if somebody came to you and said, hey, you really need to think about this. You should consider how you're treating your husband. 
you need to think about how you talk to your kids or your wife. You, you need to think about how you're interacting at church or at work. We get offended. Who do you think you are to tell me? You see, we can't possibly look at every second, every issue in our lives right now and know exactly what we have to change because we lack perspective. A perspective that age and years will bring in part. But now, enlarge that. Who has the greatest perspective on your life? Who has the ability to look at you through the lens of eternity, from the beginning of your life to the very end of your life, and know exactly who you should be and know exactly how you should grow in this moment? Only God has that perspective. So the only one truly qualified to bring discipline into our life and to truly know that he is doing so in a loving, perfect way is God. So it is foolish. It is the four-year-old child saying, I want to play in the street and screaming and yelling at their mommy and their daddy saying, I want to do what I want to do. It is the same foolishness that as adults we say, God, how dare you tell me to do this? How dare you challenge me in this? It's the same short-sightedness. And so we come to verses 5 and 6, a quote from Proverbs. It's from a father to a son for benefit and for training. It stresses the fact that we are God's children. The recipients of the book are God's children. And God loves His children. And so He disciplines them. He trains us for our good. And in verses 7 through 11, we're taught to endure Hardship as discipline. This takes great faith. And I want to be careful here. This is not saying, please hear me, because I hear Christians go wrong on this all the time. This is not saying that God has specifically caused every awful thing in your life simply because he's got something to teach you. Your mother has cancer because you need to learn a lesson. That is not what scripture says. Please hear me. I hear Christians all the time. Well, I'm really, I'm really glad I went through a divorce because it taught me things. No. I'm so glad my child is suffering and dying because it taught me things. Now, they don't go that far. That's not what Scripture is saying. There are bad things in this world that happen. Is God sovereign over them? Absolutely. Does He have a plan? Absolutely. Is that plan bigger than just you and me? Absolutely. Can we always understand why He allows, causes certain things and not others? No. But we can trust Him. This passage is not saying to look at every single thing in your life and say, God has brought this into my life just to teach me something right now. That is short-sighted. And that would be to put ourselves in the place of God. But it does mean that everything that happens to you, good, bad, or indifferent, is used by God for your discipline. That every moment of the struggles and sufferings we go through is not wasted by God. He takes those trials, He takes those struggles, and He uses them for our good. Why? Because He loves us. And because He knows 
that as he looks at you, he knows who he created you to be. And he says, I love you too much to leave you this way. I will use and even bring, yes, things into your life to train you and to discipline you. Verse 8 says, if we're not disciplined, we aren't God's children. We all want to be loved. We all want to be accepted. And our world has so completely redefined love to simply be, you have to take me exactly as I am, leave me exactly as I am, support, encourage, and cheer me on exactly as I am. That is short-sighted ignorance. That is not love. Love looks at somebody and says, I know who you are. And only God can love us that way. Truly love us that way. And say, I love you too much to leave you this way. I'm not going to allow you to continue to run into the street. I'm going to do something. I'm going to train you. I'm going to develop something in you so you don't want to run into the street. You find joy in not running into the street. God loves us too much. As His children, He loves us too much to simply leave us in our sin. But we, as verse 9 says, we have to submit. We have to trust what He's doing. Have faith in that. Submit through trusting and obeying through those difficult times and crying out to Him. And that cry can be, God, take this away from me. It's right and it's good when you're going through a difficult illness or, or a job problem or whatever it is. When you're going through a struggle, it is right and it's good to say, God, please take this away. Please solve this, fix it, heal this person, heal me. That's good. Okay? But don't just pray that. Don't stop there. Pray, God, if I have to go through this, teach me what you want me to learn. I submit to what you're teaching me. I want to come out of this experience. If I have to go through it, I want to come out of this whatever it is you want. That's submission to his discipline. And God's purpose, verse 10 says, is for our holiness. This is God's ultimate purpose in disciplining us. It is not just for our happiness, although our greatest happiness comes through our holiness. It's not just so that we can get what we want. In fact, it's not that at all. It is for holiness. Holiness is complete purity, complete absence of sin. It is being completely correct, completely accepted, because everything in us is acceptable. Could you imagine living your life, never having to wonder, what if they find out this about me? What if they saw this? What if... What if They didn't accept me for this. What if I don't measure up? If all of that was wiped away in you and in the sinfulness of how other people see you and you had absolute freedom to be exactly who you are in Jesus Christ, that would be absolute freedom. You know, I had a thought on the Nicaragua trip. There's something that happens when you go away through an intense experience with a small group of people, right? You've maybe experienced this if you ever went to a camp or if you've been through sometimes a tragedy together or a fun experience like a a short-term mission trip. There's a bonding that goes on, right? You know that person. Now, sure, you've spent quality times, you've shared stories, you've gotten to know them that way, but there's something that happens through going through that shared experience as well. Barriers are broken down. You feel closer. And and what hit me as we were in Nicaragua and I saw this happening with the team, and it always happens, I thought, what's heaven going to be like? You talk about an intense shared experience. 
that goes on for eternity. What's heaven going to be like? And then you take that to now. What is the church? The church is an intense shared experience of walking with Jesus Christ. It's a foretaste of heaven, imperfect. But we need to grow and be disciplined together. We need to allow God to develop holiness within us. Holiness in Scripture is past, present, and future. We have been made holy through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.10 talks about that. We are being made holy. This passage talks about that. And verse 14 talks about one day we'll see the Lord and rest of Scripture says we will live in perfect holiness. This is God's big picture for your holiness. Don't tell me sin doesn't matter. There's a push on the part of Christians today to say just it doesn't matter. Just let it go. It doesn't matter. Oh, it matters to God. Because he is something so far better than that. He has saved us through Jesus Christ and he sees us through the holiness of Jesus Christ that is given to us and he says, you're holy, I accept you. Come right into my presence. And right now in your life, there are things that he's using, good, bad, and ugly. He is working holiness into you if you will submit to it. And one day you'll stand before his throne unashamed, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous for eternity. That's holiness. And here's the thing we need to accept. That, that right there, is what is best for all of us. And everything that we run after and we think will bring us happiness and fulfillment isn't. God disciplines us for holiness. It's not pleasant, verse 11 says, it's not pleasant at the time, but through God's sovereign power, it is not wasted. It is good He is disciplining us for our good to produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And then look at verse 12. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. We're struggling. God knows you're struggling. He knows where you're struggling. He knows how you're struggling. He is bringing things in at just the right moment and at just the right time. And he's saying, let me teach you through this. Let me help you through this. He's not making you go from a couch potato to a marathon runner in one week. He knows you better than that. He says, here, let's just run this little race. Let me help you with this. I know what's coming. God knows what's coming in our lives. He is training us for our own holiness. Then look at verse 13. Make level paths for your feet. That's an Old Testament image of, of watching out for sin, choosing the right path. Don't allow anything to come in that will trip you up. And previously he said in verse 3, so that you don't grow weary and lose heart, he said, so that you can keep going. But look at where he goes here. We need to be disciplined so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Your personal holiness is not just about your personal holiness. My personal holiness is not just about my personal holiness. People are watching us. And God may be disciplining and encouraging them through you. And finally, just really quickly, there are three warnings in verses 14 through 17. In verse 15, it says, See that no one falls short of the grace of God. This is the image of of deciding as the Israelites are in the desert, I'm not going to keep going. He says, don't do that. Keep going. 
the second warning or the second threat is that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile so many. Don't allow sin to creep in and grow in your community and in your personal life, in the community of faith. Don't allow it. And finally, the third one, verses 16 and 17. This one's a little less obvious. Don't live as if God does not exist. It seems like this passage, it says, see that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. And there's a whole bunch of things we could say about sexual immorality, but I don't actually think that's the primary point of this passage. Because in Scripture, sexual immorality was used as a metaphor for being a godless person, for ignoring God's commands. So it's not less than sexual immorality, it's more than. And Esau is the example. Esau did what he wanted. At a critical point in his life, he decided, my hunger is more important than my holiness. The porridge is more important than God's promise. I need food more than I need God. I can figure that out later. I'm going to get what I want now. And the warning is against living as if God does not exist. And hear me. Because you might hear that and think, yeah, man, our culture, there's so many atheists in our world. and People are just giving up on Christ. And they're not trusting in Him. People are living as if God does not exist. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about Christians who live as if God doesn't exist. That's the bigger problem, I would suggest, in the church today. Trust in God, even, especially through discipline. Love the discipline that He gives. You don't have to love the way that it comes, but love the God who won't waste it in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a big topic and we just don't have time. And yet you always have time. And from the cross to the return of Jesus Christ, you have a plan for us. You have a plan to make us holy. And we want that. We we love that. We long for that. But at the same time, we need to accept it often, so often comes through trials and struggles and discipline. May we accept that you love us so much and that's why you discipline. May we also love your discipline. May we look in those moments of trial and say, God, teach me Use this to make me holy. Don't waste a moment of this suffering. But in your sovereign, powerful will, make me more like Christ. Pray this in your name. Amen.